as uh, Elroy said, my name is Noah Stone. Now, going by this name allows me to speak a lot more freely to you uh, because of the places we've worked and served over the last three years. And I just want to share briefly with you about those experiences. So my wife and children and I recently returned from Central Asia. We were there for three years working with unreached people groups in, in Central Asia. And um, it's hard to get a, a picture or a context of what might that even look like. And so here's, here's one thing that may help you get a visual of what that may look like. So there's about, about 30 or so people in this room right here. So in our city of 2 million, that made up almost half the believers in our whole city. So we had about 2.2 million plus 350,000 refugees in our city with about 100 believers. And so right here, in many ways, is way bigger than a gathering we ever had in our very small church. Uh, but also, this would be half the, half the gathering of believers in the whole city. And so, um, so as a picture of what it looks like to be in a city where there are so few believers, that's it. Everywhere you go out, anytime you go out, anytime you run into somebody, you're not in a Christian culture, you're in an Islamic culture. And, and this, yeah, has greatly, uh, will greatly impact uh, how you do ministry and, and has certainly impacted us and our family uh, for the need uh, for the gospel to be preached among all the nations. And, uh, and, so, and so, yeah, I, I'm really thankful for an opportunity to preach from Acts 10 this morning. Acts 10 uh, is one of my, includes one of my favorite stories. And uh, so if we can turn to Acts 10 now, we're going to talk about it. So while you're looking there, I'm going to share something. Uh, in our particular city, uh, there is, is very obvious that there were significant challenges uh, to do ministry there. Um, the locals were extremely friendly and welcoming and very hospitable. We never had to worry about, y you know, being rejected by people, even going out and trying to share the gospel. People were very quick to talk about politics or religion, and it was very easy, and had we had so many opportunities to share the good news. And while we were treated quite well amongst the locals, there is a segment of the population that was not treated well. In fact, there was great racism in, the, in this particular culture. And um, this particular culture uh, were predominantly refugees. And as they had come to the country, they had, the government had given them cheaper education, monthly stipend for income, health care through the government's uh, hospital systems, and also many of them could not legally work. And so the locals then had a great and even greater hatred towards these people. Now these people are getting income. They're taking up our resources, and they don't speak our language. They have a different culture, and there was just great hatred uh, between these two peoples. And it was obvious to me, even... Uh, even just working with believers, that this was still a problem in the local church in the way that the local, the majority population, treated the minority peoples. And this was a hard and very sad 
reality that we had that we had to deal with. And in this text today, we will see that nobody should be thought of as unclean or as unacceptable before God. God's desire in Acts 10 is there not be any barriers to prevent anyone from hearing the good news. Because God desires all people and peoples to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So this is the big idea in this text as we're going to dig into it and talk about it this morning. The big idea is that God removes all barriers in order to fulfill his redemptive plan so that all peoples from every nation will be saved. This is the big idea in this text. So before getting into some of the specifics of this text, the reason that this text is so grand and so magnificent is that it's, it's, it's this way because of the context that we're in here. So I'm going to briefly get into two specific themes throughout the Bible that impact this particular text. And so two of these themes are related. One is people and one is places. So I'll start with people. And this is a major theme throughout the whole Bible, particularly starting in Genesis 12 and the promise to Abraham and God's covenant with Abraham. This is Genesis 12, 1 uh, 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Now this promise is repeated multiple times, again in Genesis 18.18, 18, 22.18, 26.4, 28.14. And then this theme of the nations, this promise that God made to Abraham, is going to continue to expand even as the, New Test- the Old Testament prophets and writers continue to talk about the theme of the nations. Psalm 86.9 says, All the nations you have made will come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. So there are so many scriptures. I could, you know, take a lot of time to quote all those to you and references to you. But when you come across those in the Old Testament, remember this, that there's a, there's a point that, that the Lord is uh, making here and is slowly revealing in the Old Testament that there, something big is going to happen because currently this promise is only for essentially the nation of Israel. Now I want to make a, a short note here about nations. What does this mean when it says nations in this text? Because you're, we're going to encounter this a lot in Scripture. So I think nations does not refer to a modern political state, but I think the, mean, the biblical meaning has to do with an ethnic group that may or may not have political dimensions. Now I think a definition of a people group is really helpful in considering this. Now this is not divinely inspired, so uh, it's only helpful as far as it helps us understand this concept. So a definition of a people group is a significantly large group of individuals who perceive themselves to have a common affinity for one another because of their shared, shared language, culture, ethnicity, occupation, residence, 
class or caste, situation, or a combination of many of these things. And it is also described as the largest group within the gospel can spread in a church planning movement without encountering barriers of understanding or acceptance. And so this is a, very, this is a, a, a definition that was uh, written back in 1989 at a, a basically a missions conference. And so I think it's helpful to think of this as uh, in when you see people group, when you see nations in the scriptures, that this is an ethnic group of people uh, and, and having affinity for one another. So I'll continue now. This theme of the nations begins to really reveal itself. God begins to expand on this, particularly when we get to the New Testament. So the, new, the gospel writers, uh, especially the gospel of Luke, start to shed more light on this particular topic, on this particular revelation. And once we I'll look to turn here quickly, I'll, I'll read these. You don't have to turn to them, but this is Acts 3.25. In your offspring, all the families of the earth uh, all, shall all the families of the earth be bl- will be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. So you can see this theme. This is basically a quote right from Genesis 12 uh, that, uh, that Luke is, is quoting from the Peter's sermon here. And then we see this theme again in Romans 1.5. Uh, we have received grace. This is Paul writing here. We have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. And then this is another a quote basically from Genesis 15 and Galatians 3.8. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you all the nations shall all the nations be blessed. So we can see with these particular examples that the New Testament writers, recognizing what God was doing through the work of Christ, through the spread of the gospel then to the Gentiles, which we're going to get to in this text, was a fulfillment of God's redemptive plan. And in the end, the glory, we can look to the end, thankfully, and see in Revelations 15, 4, it says, Who shall not fear, who shall not fear, O Lord, and glorify thy name? For you alone are holy. All the nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. And so we can see throughout Scripture this theme of the nations, both, uh, first, this being basically... Uh, for the nation of Israel, but then an expansion we can see in Revelations 15 that peoples from every nation will come and worship and glorify the one and true living God. So the second theme is places. Now this is very particular to the book of Acts, and so uh, we see in Acts 1-8 that the Spirit empowers uh, the work for the spread of the gospel. Now I'll just, I'll just read this quickly here. This is Acts 1-8. We'll start at verse 6. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, this is Christ speaking, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in, the, in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. 
Now this, now we're getting to the theme of the book of Acts. And one of the, this is one of the major themes of the book of Acts, is the spreading, both geographically, really, uh, we see the geographical spread, both from Jerusalem and then out to other parts of the known world. So the scripture, the book is really broken down in some different chunks of the gospel going out. So first the gospel goes out to Jerusalem in Acts 1 through 6, then goes beyond Jerusalem in, in chapters 6 through 9, and then where we are, the gospel going out to Judea and Samaria. So we see this expansion uh, in this theme throughout the book of Acts, and we come now to, the, to chapter 10 with the story of Peter and Cornelius. Now let's walk through this text and see how this impacts even in this particular theme of places and peoples and this, how this, th- what the role that this story has in this greater context. So let's start at verse 1. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort. A devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. So we see that this man is a man of authority. A centurion is a man who is over a hundred soldiers. And he was also a devout man who feared God with all his household. Let's continue. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly a vision, uh, in a vision, an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him and, uh, in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial to God. And now send men to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a a devout soldier from among those who who attended him. And having related everything to him, he sent them to Joppa. Now this text says that this man was devout, that Cornelius was devout. Now this does not mean that he was a believer, uh, one who was saved and had received forgiveness of sin, but devout, was this particular was used for somebody who was religious, somebody who was deeply religious. And this same word is used to describe the Jews, unsaved Jews, in fact. And this vision, how many visions do we see in the books, book of Acts? Now, there are quite a few. But in this particular chapter, we're, we have two visions in this chapter. Now, this, this is amazing to see this in this story. Now, how does Cornelius respond to this vision? He recognizes that this is from the true and living God, and he responds in obedience to this vision. Now, we should note (laughs) that something extraordinary is about to happen here. Let's continue reading. This is now Peter's vision. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the household about the sixth hour to pray, and he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens open and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. And in it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, 
for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time. What God has made clean do not call common. This happened, uh, happened three times, and the, thing was, and the thing was taken up once again to heaven. Wow, this is quite a bizarre scene, is it not? I think it's hard to capture the bizarreness and shockingness of this particular vision. And I think it's hard because there are a few things in our culture and our life that seem to be, um, well, there are things that are bizarre and shocking and offensive in our culture, but this is on a different level. The only way that I can really relate to this in, in from our time overseas in an Islamic context is inviting guests over to my house, Islam Muslims, conservative Muslims, and then presenting pork as our primary meal. That would be shocking and offensive to them, and that person um, may bolt out of the door. And I'm, I'm trying to understand this in the context of this vision because the things that the Lord is giving to Peter here are things that he has never eaten in his whole life. Why on earth would God tell Peter to eat something that he has been told is dirty? Why would this happen? This is a bizarre and shocking scene. And at this point, uh, I guess we'll see what Peter makes of this whole bizarre story. Let's continue. Verse 17. Now while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry, inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and, and, uh, and said, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who was well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them to be his guests. The next day he rose and went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting him, them, and he called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up! I too am a man. And as he talked with, the, with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without obligation. I asked them, why you sent for me? So we're going to stop here at this, at this verse here. Now, it's interesting. I wonder, if we look, think about the story starting in verse 17, if Peter might have refused this invitation. 
Now the text says, the story goes that the spirit then came to him and said, rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation. So clearly Peter was having, uh, probably would not have gone to this particular meeting. And for the reason that he says in verse 28, that it would be unlawful for him to go to be part of this particular meeting. But God was obviously doing something here and revealing a new direction here. And so God's divine plan here, as we can see, as Peter, trying to make sense of all this, sees this vi- has this vision, the Lord tells him to eat this particular food that he has never eaten before, and then when the messengers come, the Lord connects these dots, and suddenly he understands, wow, something's going on here. I need to not think of this particular invitation as being something unclean that I shouldn't attend to, but that I need to go. This is God's direction. And so then he goes. Cornelius is waiting, and this just reminds me of some of our experiences in Central Asia. You go to somebody's house thinking you're just going to hang out with your friend. And you walk in, and the room is packed. And you're like, oh, I was planning on sharing the gospel with, like, one person. And suddenly this room is jammed. <laughs> this is going to be weird. <laughs> We've definitely had experiences like that. And here we see this whole crowd that the Lord has gathered for an incredible opportunity and an incredible lesson. And so, the lesson in this text, as I said at the beginning, was that God has declared that every single person, Gentiles here, non-Jews, are basically, in in Peter's words maybe, fit for receiving the gospel. This is amazing. And so in the following verses, in verses uh, 30 through uh, 33, uh, uh, Cornelius recounts this divine encounter that he has, and and we just see, uh, yeah, this this impact that this vision had on Cornelius. And this we're coming to here, is a pivotal time, a pivotal point in redemptive history. For the first time, non-Jews are understood to be equal with Jews before God. In God's redemptive plan, all nations, all peoples, are able to truly come and know him. This is no no longer just uh, something that the prophet spoke about, but something that's now become a reality. Because what happens? Peter comes... He shares the gospel, verses 34. After he finishes preaching, the Spirit falls upon them, and these, and these new believers then are baptized. Now, I believe this text demonstrates also the necessity of hearing the gospel in order to believe. Now, this is something that we should not take for granted. Uh, this, is, this is a significant challenge, even within what you would call Christianity or evangelicalism. Now, um, being overseas, we've, in, in the Islamic context, we've heard many stories of Muslims having dreams or visions. And, um, and there's a question that some people have or an interpretation as to, do these dreams or visions save these individuals, or are they a means to something? 
And, and some people might have uh, different stories, but the stories that I've heard, maybe you've heard some of these in different magazines or, or uh, stories from other wor- missionaries or, or others in different countries, but every time I've heard a story firsthand about these experiences, an individual, a Muslim, may have a dream at night or a day or even multiple dreams about the same thing, and the Lord is directing them to believe or to believers or to the scriptures. Sometimes I've heard crazy stories of people getting an address in a dream and they go to this address and they're like, I don't know why I'm here. I just had this dream three times that I should come here and I don't know why I'm here. And this missionary is like, well, here, I'll give you a Bible and share the gospel with you. So these things, these things happen. And um, I mean, this is, this is an amazing story. And unfortunately, this text is often used as a text to argue that, well, Cornelius here, did he, was he a believer before, before Christ, uh, or sorry, before Peter came? Was he saved? This is an important question that we need to ask and that we need to understand and have an answer for. And actually, I think, based on this text that, and Luke telling the story, that the story is actually quite the opposite. But I want to give you four reasons from this text that Cornelius was not already saved prior to Peter's coming. So I'd like you to bear with me here while, while we look at this. Let's look at, uh, first look at uh, Acts eleven fourteen. So now this is, in 14, Peter is now reporting to the church on what happened with Cornelius. So when retelling the story, the text says that Peter's sermon was the means by which Cornelius was saved. Verse 14 says, And he will declare a message. Here, I'll go back a bit. And he told us how when he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He, that is Peter, will, future tense, declare to you a message by which you will be saved you and all your household. So, yes, I like grammar, and this verb tense is future, and this is really important to an understanding in saying that, no, Cornelius was not saved at this time, but the message, after hearing it, he will be saved as a result of that message. Let's look um, at verses, uh, at verse 43, 1043. Now, this is the conclusion of, of Peter's sermon. And in Peter's sermon here, He finishes by saying, To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him, that is, in Christ, receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Now, whose name is this? Through Christ's name, through Jesus' name. Why wasn't Cornelius saved? Why had he not received forgiveness of sins at this point? Because he did not have belief in forgiveness of sins through Christ's name. He did not know Christ. But after the preaching, he certainly did. Now, third point here. This is a common argument in using understanding in verse 10-2 here of Cornelius being a devout man. Um, without going into a ton of detail, there are multiple examples uh, in the book of Acts even of the Jews, like I had mentioned earlier, being called devout, and then them being told to repent and believe in the gospel. Now, this happens in Peter's sermon in, in Acts 2.38, and then 3.19, and then in chapter 13, verses 38 and 39, 
Now these, these Jews are called to repent and be baptized in the name of Christ to receive forgiveness of their sins. So we see that even as the gospel got its start from among the most devout and religious people, the Jews, even at the beginning of this time, we know that they did not have forgiveness of sins and that they were called to repent and to believe in the gospel. And the last, last point, last scripture here, we'll look at in chapter 11. And it's uh, right at the end of Paul's, uh, or sorry, Paul's, Peter's uh, testimony or story with the, share, retelling of the story with uh, the believers here in verses eight, verse 18. Let's look at verse 18 together. For, so verse 18 says, And when they heard these things, they fell silent. That is, the people who were listening fell silent. And they also glorified, saying, glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. And so we see that the Gentiles, and that is including Cornelius, did not already have eternal life as recognized by the, by the church, by the believers here. But that through this work, through this um, preaching and the Spirit coming upon the Gentiles, that, that they, the church recognized that the gospel has now been poured out. The Spirit has been poured out, and therefore salvation has been poured out on those who are not ethnic Jews. Wow. What an example here. What a story. Now, if we were to look at one more text that I would say is critical for understanding that one must hear the gospel, one must learn about Christ in order to be saved, that example, personally, my favorite example would be from Romans 10. Romans 10, verses, starting at verse 14. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Wow. This is a mandate in conjunction with Matthew twenty-eight nineteen, of the necessity to go. And that unless people go and preach the good news, people will not be saved. People will not hear the name of Christ and will not receive forgiveness of sins. So this text also says that Cornelius was acceptable. Now this is a very interesting, uh, very interesting way to, or maybe... It's definitely an argument that people use to argue that Cornelius was saved, that he was acceptable. And th- this, is, this is found in verse 35, 1035. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Now, what does it mean here? What does acceptable mean? Now, I think this is right in conjunction with the main thrust, the main point of this particular text. This word can also mean welcome. So in other words, in conjunction with looking at verse 28, 
in Peter's um, statement here that God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean was that a Christian, we as Christians, should never look down on people from any race or other ethnic group and say that they are unfit to hear the gospel. All people groups are welcome and acceptable before God. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable, is welcome to God. Now, based on, based on this text, based on this main thrust of this text, I want you to think about a couple of things and ask yourself some questions. Have you ever thought that somebody was unfit for the gospel? When you go out, you go to work, you go to the mall, you walk downtown, when you go about life, have you ever thought in looking at somebody that, man, that guy's not fit for the gospel? Maybe it was the homeless person you saw begging on the street. Maybe it was refugees or immigrants that you couldn't communicate with well. Have you ever thought that they might be too unclean and that you would not go in that person's house to share the gospel with them or under that bridge where that person lives? Have you ever thought that someone was not worth evangelizing? All that people group, they're too small. They're only like 100 people and they speak a language, we'd have to learn it. They're not worth it. Or maybe this person or these individuals have too many offensive habits for you. This person does a lot of immoral things, things that we can't even talk about. You know, should we even do, should we even bother? If you have ever thought any of these things, you definitely have sinned and you need to repent. And you need to recognize that these thoughts and ideas are contrary to the gospel itself, which invites all people into a relationship with God. And I've, I've seen, on a small scale in North America, but certainly on a large scale in Central Asia, that racism is a gross sin and where people are treated as if they, w they were less acceptable to God, less human, or maybe even not even human. I know that the locals that I worked with, many of them treated refugees as if they were dogs or cats. And their depictions and graphics and comics reflected this. Or maybe there are times in your life where you have coworkers, you encounter people, and you think, man, this, this guy's better than me. I can't share the gospel with him. This guy's wealthy. This guy's a man of power. This guy's a man of authority. He's my boss at work. Or he's a, a popular politician, or whoever it may be. I think in some cases, this is something I ran into at times where I'm working and trying to share the gospel in another language, and I'm like, man, I speak like a, a sixth grader and who is going to listen to me? Is this guy, this businessman, going to listen to me? Should I even bother with this guy? Or should I just kind of stick with the low-hanging fruit? But this guy, these people, people who we look up to, people who we look down to, this is unacceptable, in an unacceptable way of approaching 
the gospel and our understanding of this, if this person, individual, needs the gospel. And maybe some of you have been the subject of racism and experienced pain that comes along with that. Now, I had one experience. I had one experience uh, overseas where I was treated, somebody thought I was a refugee and treated me like I was one. And I had never had an experience like that in my life. But for several minutes, I had an experience where suddenly I could feel like I could relate a lot more to some of the other people I was working with. Because all my, the, all my people group were the ones who were uh, subjugated in society, who were hated in society. So suddenly I was like, wow, that really, that was a terrible experience. And so maybe you have a distorted idea about who is acceptable before God. Certainly the gospel is not only for us, but it is for all people. Now, if you have been hurt, maybe even by believers, or maybe even by somebody not treating you as if you were human, you need to know that Christ welcomes you. You need to know that Christ wants you to be saved. God has proclaimed the gospel through the church, through churches, through individuals. And you are not excluded from the gospel. And you can find forgiveness and healing in the one who has declared that you can find your identity and peace in him. Now, God has said that nobody should be called common or unclean. And God does not exclude exclude any people group from conversion and just the opposite all people groups are acceptable and welcome before him and we as a should have a desire in a biblical vision have a biblical vision of the church where we see in the book of revelation like i had uh, read earlier where people from every tribe tongue and nation come and bow before almighty god and worship him How are we going to see this vision unless we proclaim the gospel? One day, Lord willing, we will be before the throne of God and we will see every tribe, tongue, and nation there. But God has entrusted this task to the church. God has entrusted us to the task that we proclaim the gospel message. And my question in closing to you is, Will you proclaim the gospel to those, to everyone, but especially to those who are minorities and to those who are hated in our own society? May God bless the preaching of the word.